0: Come back often and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. So, I hope you got a handout in front of you. If you don't, then grab one. We're going to walk through some information on that this morning. And if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Haggai, uh, we'll be reading through that in just a sec. So, just by way of review, very quickly, I want to make sure we know where we are in the history of the world. Uh, on your handout, there is the the map of the or timeline of the kings uh, of Israel uh, up to the point where then the kingdoms are divided to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the orange text, there are the prophets uh, that God sent to each parts of those uh, kingdoms. And the part that we're looking at today is after that Babylonian exile. Uh, And something that I've I've thought about the last couple of weeks that I don't think I've actually mentioned is that we we talked about those three world empires, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians. And the Babylonians are actually the folks that came and, well, the Assyrians are the folks that took and scattered the northern kingdom out uh, up north around Nineveh. But the Babylonians took the Israelites from the southern kingdom and took them to Babylon. But at the end of that period, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, which is why we have a Persian king overseeing the return of the exiles from a Babylonian captivity. So in case you were wondering what happened there, I wasn't just mixed up on my empires. It, we had a transition of world power in the, in the midst that I didn't talk about. So, um, And it was a really big deal, but uh, the reality is God many times will overthrow world empires to move his people around to where they need to be. Uh, which, to me, is a shockingly amazing way to do things, but it's not a big deal to him. So that's what he does. So uh, what's Haggai about? Uh, it's about four different prophecies. Today we're going to finish up chapter 1. Uh, and chapter 1 is really all about that first prophecy. Chapter 2 has uh, prophecies numbers 2, 3, and 4. Uh, Haggai is about prioritization and rebuilding the temple and putting God's uh, activities above our own. Uh, Haggai, we see him as a cheerleader today, uh, and then at the end of chapter 2, we see the future hope that comes later on. So if you found Haggai, we'll go ahead and read through the text. Uh, we'll read all two chapters, because it's just so long, right? Uh, again, I'll confess to you that I find sometimes that I read more about the text than I do the actual text, and I've been trying in the last couple of years to just read the actual text more. Um, Somebody at saudi da- I'm doing this same series on Sunday nights at Saudi Days. You have about 20 more minutes uh, to deal with, so I go into a lot more detail on Sunday nights. Um, and somebody asked me at the end of the lesson last week, how many times have you read Haggai? I, I don't... It's at least 100 at this point. I don't know. I read it a lot. Uh, but you see and you remind it and you're reminded and you're reminded. And it is good just to soak on the scripture and see what, uh, what is there. So we'll start with Haggai 1 and we'll read Haggai 1 and 2. So in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the word of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the priest, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. And Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward and from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, and there were but ten, when one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, and there were but twenty, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, From the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn? As yet, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots. And those who ride in them, the horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord of hosts, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So that is the text of Haggai. Uh, Today's text is in verses 12 through 15. Uh, So let's take a look at, uh, kind of as we get into this, Uh, One of the things that I do when I'm studying that I don't typically do in here is call out the individual characters in a specific passage and focus on what are they doing in this text. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 15, then we're going to talk for just a second about what each one of these characters is actually doing so we understand their perspective in this text. So verse 12, Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. So, before we get into individual characters, I want to ask you a question. Who is the main character of Haggai? Who is the main character of Haggai? So I heard Zerubbabel. I thought I heard Haggai. I heard God from two different people. Who is the main character of Haggai? It is God is the main character of Haggai. God is the main character of the entire Bible. And when we forget that, we get distracted on other people that are in the actual text. So keep that in mind as we walk through. So who's the first character that's mentioned in this particular text? Zerubbabel, right? Okay. So what did he do? He obeyed, right? Okay. Did he, did he hear the message? Let's get real tactical, right? Yes, he heard the message. He acted on the message. And who did he obey with? Did he just go off on his own and independently act? Joshua. No, he obeyed with Joshua. And who else? The rest of the people, right? They all worked together, okay? So the next character is really not Shealtiel because Shealtiel is just the, um, the father. It's telling him who, whose lineage he's from. Uh, so Joshua is the next character. And what does Joshua do? He obeys. he obeys, right? He hears the message. He obeys. And he works with who? Zerubbabel and the rest of the people, right? Yeah. So we have very similar paths. And it's important to look and see this because Zerubbabel is the civic leader. He's the governor of this space. And Joshua is the religious leader. He's the high priest of this space. And the civic leader and the religious leader do the same work. They listen to the same message. They work with the same people. They do the same job. And it is okay For the civic leadership and religious leadership to come together on things from time to time to work together to accomplish something that is good for both sets of people. This works. This is okay. So the next character uh, in the story is who? This one's easy to miss. The people, right? Yeah, absolutely. The people. So the, the people, what do they do? Well, they have the exact same thing, right? They receive the message, they act on the message, and they work with Zerubbabel and Joshua, their leadership, to go and obey. So the next character, who's the next character? Here you go. Now you've been waiting for it. God God is the next character, right? So what does God do? Now God shows up over 30 times in the book of Haggai. So if you just do a count, like just straight up math count, he is obviously the main character in the book of Haggai. Uh, So what does God do here? Gave the message, right? Absolutely. So he's the source of the message. What else does he do? Who does he give the message to? He gives a message specifically to one person, right? He didn't give the message to everybody. He gives the message to one person who then shares that with others. Uh, What else does God do in this text? He stirs up their hearts, which is amazing, right? Because he's got work to be done. So what does he do? He influences his people for that work to be done. Uh, So who's the next character? Haggai, right? What does Haggai do? He listened for a message. This is the first thing, right? And you don't see this in the text, but obviously if he heard the message, he had to be listening for the message. listened to the message, and then he spoke the message. Did he change the message? No. How do we know this? He survives. (laughs) It's a very simple way to know if a prophet messes with the message or not. Is he alive at the end of the story? If the prophet is alive at the end of the story, he did not mess with the message. This is a very easy way to tell. So we know he, he lives to the end, which is good. So he's alive. He delivers the message. Is Haggai part of the remnant of all the people? Yes? No? What do you think? Yes, he is. He came back we think, from Babylon as well. Um, and then who's the last character mentioned in the very last part? Darius. Darius. And what does Darius do? It kind of feels like he's just hanging out and not doing much, right? Go to Proverbs 21.1. I'll show you what Darius is doing. Proverbs twenty-one-one. What's Darius doing? He's being held by the hand of the Lord. That's right. So when you wonder why in the world would Darius let them do this? Why would he let them go back? Because Cyrus, like his granddad, actually issued the demand to let them go back. And Darius let it continue. He actually, if you read Ezra, there's a lot of funding that came from the Persians to actually go do this work. Which is, you know, God opens up the checkbook of the pagan king and funds his own work. And you're like... Well, I didn't see that as an option. It's because he's got a lot of options. He's holding the heart of the king. And when it looks like the king is doing something crazy, God is holding the heart of the king. And when it looks like the king is doing something that aligns with what God wants done, God is holding the heart of the king. Who is in charge? God is in charge. Darius is not in charge. If you count the number of times that the Lord of hosts is mentioned in Haggai, You will need more than your hands. It is over and over and over again, this subtle message that there is a king larger than Darius at play, and he is governing all things. So dare I say, as we look forward to something that is going to happen in a little over a month, let us not uh, lose our ever-loving minds, because my Lord of hosts is going to hold in his hands the heart of that king, and it will be okay. There is a Lord of hosts that is higher and far above what we consider to be the most powerful political office on this planet. All right? I'm going to exit out of that conversation very quickly. All right? Here we go. So let's dig a little bit deeper. So uh, verse 12. Then We're going to verse by verse. So flip over to the back side of your handout if you're not already there. So then Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel actually shows up in Matthew chapter 1. Why would Zerubbabel show up in Matthew chapter 1? His lineage, right? Remember those genealogies? They're actually important. They're really important. He's somebody's great, 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 great grandfather. Who would that be? Jesus. Yeah. This is why part of this story is incredibly important. Because even in the exile when His people go into captivity, even coming back from the exile, when His people are struggling to rebuild and figure out who they are as a nation and come together around these religious ideals of worshiping Yahweh, God is still working to bring about His will 520 years later. He has not forgotten them. Guys, we, we cannot forget that God's story began before He created space and time and matter and will never end. We get mixed up into thinking like, oh, this is this one little isolated thing. No, 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 no. It's part of a massive story that God is telling. And it is not done with these people. And what does he tell them in the middle of this? I can't wait to get to it. I am with you. He was with them 520 years before Jesus showed up. He was with them in a different way when Jesus showed up. He is with us today. This is a good message for us. So then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now remember, we, we talked. I think, I think I mentioned last week that this is not the same Joshua that marched around Jericho, right? Did I mention that last week? Yes? Okay, good. Those guys are separated by about 900 years. And if, whenever you have these massive historical figures that are incredibly popular, you end up with people after them that get named after them. There were lots of little Joshuas running around. I mean, a lot. Jesus is actually a derivation of the name Joshua. Uh, and, and Joshua... Uh, actually, let me, let me back up. Sorry, I forgot. I skipped over something in my notes. I got to come back and hit this because Jesus is all over this particular text, and I don't want us to miss this. So, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, is, is Zerubbabel a king? No. no what is he? Governor. He's a governor. Why is he not a king? Who, whose lineage is he from? If he shows up in Matthew 1, who's his great, 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 great granddaddy? David, right, and he goes back through and, and all the way i mean he's got he 's got straight back all the way. this is neat stuff, but why does he not have the title of a king it right? 's exactly right. Darius is not allowing somebody else to be king. Darius is king i 'll have a little governor uh, in other places in the Old Testament they call him satraps, which is kind of like a half a step up from a governor. It feels like if you're you get a little promotion and you get a little more territory, you're under you're over some governors. But there's several different levels below the king. But Zerubbabel does some things that are very king like in chapter two. And whenever you see a king in the old testament, this is trying to tell us that these are shadows of something that is coming that is much, much greater. There is a better king who is coming, who is going to lead his people properly and rule effectively. And that king's name is? Jesus, absolutely. So then we get to Joshua, the high priest. And the first Joshua, you remember, who, who did not get to lead the people into the promised land because of sin? You remember? Moses didn't get to lead the pro- people in the promised land. And who was Moses' assistant? Joshua, right? So he apprenticed under Moses for, what what was it, 40 years, I think it was? It was a long time to be the number two guy. And, like, literally, you're the errand boy at the beginning of this, and you rise to be the person that obviously is going to lead the people into the land. So Joshua, the first Joshua, leads his people into the land. This Joshua leads his people into right religious worship of God because they're going to rebuild the temple, and they are both pointing toward a future Yahshua, Yeshua, who is going to come and bring another kind of inheritance to his people. At least they're all pointing towards Jesus in the future. Does this make sense? Don't miss Jesus when you read the Old Testament, he's all over the place. It's absolutely amazing. So, with all the remnant, does anybody have a different word in your translation than remnant? It's a really neat word. I'm going to take it down a math path, but that's okay because I can. But a different word than remnant? MathPath. it be, be a great website, wouldn't it? MathPath.com. <laughs> Julie's like, no more websites. I know, sorry. I get these grand ideas from time to time, then I'll go to GoDaddy and reserve a website, and then I don't do anything with it, and let it expire like five years later, and all that happens is GoDaddy makes 50 bucks. So it's like, okay, whatever. Uh, so a, a better word here is actually remainder. Uh, remainder, and that's your blank. So flip over to Luke 12, uh, 49 through 53. Now in math, what is the remainder? Left What's left over after you what? After you divide. There's something left over after you divide. And think about what God is doing to his people by taking them into captivity, dividing them up, dividing them up. And there's something left over who didn't get fully assimilated into Babylon and stay. Because the number of people that went to Babylon far exceeded the number of people who came back. I mean, hundreds of thousands more went versus than came back. And it's a remainder. It's literally a remainder. And this is what God does. God divides. And we think about God as a oh, a wonderfully loving, kind, generous, benevolent, bringing people together... And the reality is, they asked Jesus this question in Luke twelve forty nine through 53 and what does it say? What does it say, darling? I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division... From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, <clears throat> mother against daughter and daughter against mother, <clears throat> mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So why is this the case? Because not everybody is Truth divides Amen. every time. Amen. Truth divides. And, and if we want to stand up and say, we are Christians, we are believers, we will stand for truth, we need to be prepared for division. This is the reality of the world. Now, this does not mean that we go out and we seek division and we are jerks and arrogant and we try to see how many times that we can divide. And, and, no, 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 no. Brian has this beautiful quote that he talks about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive enough without us trying to make it more offensive. Right? It, is, it is bluntly offensive to sin. It is, you are wrong and you are going to hell. Well, that's, that doesn't sound loving and inclusive. Well, it's inclusive if you accept Christ. <laughs> but it's extraordinarily exclusive otherwise. And the gospel divides. And this, every time you see the word remnant, in the Old Testament, is a reminder that God is in the division business. And through division, He gathers His own. And through division, He gathers His own. And there's going to be a day later on in history where He divides the sheep from the goats. And the goats are sent one direction, and the sheep are sent another. And it's the last division. And it's going to be an awful, awful day for those that are sent to hell. So when we see this word remnant, this is a shadow of something larger that is coming that Jesus Christ himself is going to participate in. So with all the remnant of the people, so everybody has work to do, right? The leadership has work to do. Haggai has work to do. The people has work to do. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. So let's talk about a prophet for just a second. So we've looked at a king. We've looked at a priest. And now we see a prophet. So who is the greatest prophet of all? This is the easy one, guys. Who is the greatest prophet of all? Jesus is the greatest prophet of all, right. So in one verse, we have three different distinct looks at Jesus. Four, if you count the remnant. And we're really not done with the verse yet. Don't tell me Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. There are hints and foreshadowing all the way through. This is absolutely amazing. Now, Flip back over to Haggai 1.2. So most of your Bibles you can see 1-2 and 1-12 on the same page. But if you continue, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Whose God was it in verse 12? Their, their God. What about 1-2? Who's speaking in 1-2? Haggai's speaking for God, and what does he call him? This. People. He didn't say my people. He said this people. Have you ever been so angry at your children that you spoke to your spouse and you said your children are these children? No, no we wouldn't do that. Not at all. This morning. This morning. Yeah. It is Sunday, right? I've never understood that. Whoever sang that song "Easy Like Sunday Morning" did not have kids. That was just not. It's so not how this works. Uh, we had a really smooth morning this morning, though, so thanks, kiddos. I appreciate that. Tell Caleb that as well. Um, but it goes from this people to their God in 12 verses. And what was the difference in those 12 verses? Obedience, right? O-B-E-D-I-N-C-E. It is really not a lot more complicated than that. It, it's, it's really not Uh, So their God, contrasted by this people in Haggai 1-2, had sent Him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Now, you you see this idea of fearing God in the Old Testament. Flip over to Proverbs 1-7. We talked about this, I want to say, six, eight months ago or so. Um, I think we were in the... uh, Yes, yeah, Solomon and social media, where I did the um, oh my goodness, I'm going to blank on it now. The pedagogy, the, the hierarchy of uh, wow. all of my educational training is going completely out the window right now. Uh, it's the opposite of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's what do you start with, and then you build on that, and then you build on that, and you build on that. It was a triangle that I showed in the picture. I don't know if you yes, it was a pyramid. Um, Same difference. It's a triangle. It's the same thing. Uh, On a two-dimensional representation, a pyramid and triangle look the same. So I do know this. (laughs) I can can do the math even when I'm not okay. All right, so Proverbs 1-7. Let's just go there. I'll take that out of the podcast. Proverbs 1-7. Who's got it? Justin, you got it? I do. All right. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yeah, so, so what do we start with before we can be... We're not even talking about wisdom, right? We're just talking about knowledge. We've got to get knowledge and then understanding and then discernment and application and wisdom. It starts with fear of the Lord, of the Lord right? Because if we don't fear the master and maker of the universe, nothing else makes sense. You can take and misinterpret every other fact in the known universe. Because if you put God in the wrong spot hierarchically, nothing makes sense. So you have to get the most important thing right first. Which is why it is good and right to teach new believers very fundamental truths about the powerful nature of our God. So that we put fear in its right spot. Now, this does not mean that we walk around terrified that God's going to zap us all day long. No, 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 no. It's not the way this works. But He is powerful, and it is a good thing to know. And they were filled with, they were fear, feared the presence of the Lord. All right, verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger. Anybody got a different word for messenger there? This word is actually translated, a very specific word, over a hundred times in the Old Testament, and this is one of the anomalies. The Lord's angel. This is the Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word for angel. The Lord's angel. And if you think about what an angel does, an angel just delivers messages. That's Fundamentally, that's what angels were uh, designed to do. Uh, Then Haggai, the Lord's angel, spoke the Lord's message, which is really good because you need a messenger to speak the Lord's message, to the people saying, I am with you. And I have a question there in your notes. What more do I want than the presence of God? So I'll read my notes to you. If I can put anything in that blank, it is idolatry. Right? If there's anything I can put in that blank, then okay. Then that is an idol in my life. Um, And if, so so again, another toss-up for you. Who is the greatest example of the presence of God? Jesus, right? So again, we're pointing toward, I am with you. And he's going to be with us in a different way. Uh, 520 years from there, says the Lord. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up, or aroused, or lifted up, or opened the eyes of the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. So are we ever commanded to stir anything up? What are we commanded to stir up? Feels like something in Hebrews 10.24, right? Sorry. Yes. Stir up what? Uh, there's something before. One another, one another. Can you read the verse for me? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Ah, love comes first. Yeah. Love comes first. And, and I, I find that we miss this quite a bit in American Christianity because we want to go and just do the good works part but not do the love part. And the love part is sharing truth. And when you omit the sharing of truth and just do the good works, Christianity becomes a list of uh, bringing water to the desert. And it becomes uh, feeding the homeless and clothing the homeless. And there's no truth associated with it. And if you, if you take that philosophy and you run with it for a generation or two, the next generation and the generation after them, forget what the truth that was the cohesive feature that all this was founded upon and then they're all about good works, and then it is no longer a Christian organization, and things devolve very quickly. It takes about one or two generations of just focusing on good works to totally exclude the gospel, which is why love comes first. And they came and they what? Verse 14, they came and they worked. Yeah, there's an element here of just physically doing the work. You remember earlier in the text, uh, in verses, I think, 10 and 11, Haggai told them, You're going to have to go up to the mountains and get the wood to rebuild the temple. And the wood was not lying on the ground, pre cut, measured, everything's good to go, or sitting on carts with the oxen ready, and they just marched it down the mountain, yay, this is good. No, no. They had to go and they had to work. They had to cut the trees down, they had to haul it somewhere. This was not easy work to do. And remember, they're in the middle of a drought. So the land is not giving them the yield that it's supposed to. They're cold in the middle of summer. It's awkward. The, the work that they're doing, they're not getting all the, the benefit of the work that they're doing. It's just not a good scenario. What did they work on? The house of the Lord, right? Absolutely. They worked on the house of the Lord. So why, what was the big deal about the house of the Lord in the Old Testament? It's like, so what? What's the big deal? It's where God lived, right? This is a big deal. Where does God live today? Does God live in our sanctuary today? No. Where does God live today? In us. us. Right. We are the modern application of the temple. So when you see Philippians 2.12, that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The work element of salvation has not stopped. It began in the garden before the fall Work is not a, a result of the fall. God gave Adam and Eve jobs to do before they sinned, and they were, they were working, and then they sinned, and then the work got difficult and painful, and it was hard. But work is still an element of creation, and it will be after Jesus comes and makes a new heaven and a new earth. We will work for Him there. Someone will need to run that earth. Hi, we're someone. <laughs> That's how that operates. Okay? So we're going to get to work for all of eternity. Learn to love work. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Yeah, what was the make work your favorite? What was that? That's from uh, Elf. Yes, Elf. There we go. <laughs> it's like, I was trying to get that quote in my head yesterday. Uh, <laughs> you remember this movie? Sorry, Darla. I went several weeks without quoting a movie, right? Yes. I was really trying, and then it was just it's too much. All right, great. Make work your favorite. Okay. Uh, the worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. So, again, this reminder that there is a king above Darius, Uh, their God, worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Remember Nehemiah 4.6? You remember Nehemiah 4.6? They rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem there in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is actually considerably before. If you look on your timeline on the front page, Nehemiah is considerably... uh, uh, Oh, it's not on there, is it? Really? Oh, because he's not a prophet. Yeah. Nehemiah is before the exile. Sorry, that's the that happened. Because the temple got, uh, I was going to say jacked up once before, but it got destroyed once before. Uh, and it lay in ruin for a very, very long time. But Nehemiah 4.6 says, So we built the wall, this is Nehemiah talking. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So in Nehemiah, the people had a mind to work. In Haggai, the people had a spirit to work. And both of those resulted in work getting done. So I don't care if it starts in your mind. I don't care if it starts in your spirit. The work needs to get done. It is about accomplishing some measure of work. So don't, don't be so heavenly minded that we don't actually do anything good. Um, and then verse 15, On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So how many days are we from verse 15 to verse 1? 23 days later, right? So why did it take them 23 days to work? Now, there's, the text does not tell us this, so I'm going to give you several different options. So one could be, well, they, they actually got to work cutting down the trees the second after Haggai told them, get up in the hills and the mountains and go cut down the trees, and it took them 23 days just to get the supplies and the materials ready so that they could actually begin the work. A lot of commentators believe that's the truth. Some of the commentators believe they need to go and debate amongst themselves to see, do we want to leave our paneled houses? Because, boy, we got it good right now. I don't know if I want to go live up in the mountains for a while and cut down trees because that feels a little redneckish, right? I don't know if I want to go do that. That's a lot of work. So could be either direction. We're not really sure. The reality is they did the work, which is really, really good. In the second year of King Darius, I'm going to read you a quote from Spurgeon here. God takes note of the time when his people work for him he records in his almanac the day, the month, the year, for he loves to see his people actively engaged in his service. And all that work that they were doing between the time that they started the temple 14 years earlier and the time that it was lying dormant here 14 years later, and they started that work again, that work was not for God. That work was in vain. And that work yielded very small results. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. 58. anybody got it? You know it, darling? You started it. yeah. okay. Yes, sir, you got it. How often abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that? How often in the work of the Lord? Always, yes. Always. It's not a part-time job, is it? No. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Those last three words are really, really important because I can do stuff in my own strength and it is for nothing. It is of no value. But if I do work for him, it is very, very good. So Haggai chapter 1 is a couple of things. It's an illustration of the gospel. The message of the Lord is presented by a messenger of God. The spirit of man is stirred up by God himself. A response occurs, and it's a visible response. And the response is not seen on the same day as the message is delivered, but God doesn't stop working in the interim, and a beautiful result occurs reconciliation and obedience. I think the whole gospel is presented in Haggai chapter 1. It's a stunningly beautiful thing. And Jesus is all over the place there. And I've got a couple, of verses, a couple of questions there for kind of probably your homework to think through those. Uh, those questions, but we'll look at some application real quick. So, application number one God always has a remnant. R E M N A N T. He always has a remnant. So, what do we do with that? Well, we examine ourselves, right, to make sure we're in the remnant. Number two, the gospel is everywhere in the Old Testament, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. So, look for the gospel and praise God when you see it. Uh, number three, Jesus is all over the... And most New Testament believers would tell you to put new in that blank. I'll tell you to put old in that blank. He is all over the Old Testament. So look for Jesus. Uh, obedience plus reverence are a good thing. If you just have obedience and you don't have reverence, then you're working in vain. If you just have reverence and you don't have obedience, then you are of no value. When you have reverence and obedience, this is what God desires. So obey and revere. Don't ignore either part of that. And the number five, probably to, for me the biggest lesson of Haggai 1, everyone has work to do. So guess what five is? Get to work. <laughs> it's real basic. Haggai's not a it's not a, a deeply theologically complicated message. It is get to work, right? So where do we need to get to work? So next week we'll look at the first nine verses of chapter 2, um, kind of talking about some of these forward-looking prophecies. Uh, and then we'll spend about two more weeks in Haggai, uh, and we'll go from there. So uh, thank you for coming to Sunday School today. Your weekly update is in the middle of the table. Uh, make sure that you have put your name at the bottom of that. That's how we record attendance in our room. Uh, pray over those prayer requests. Uh, if you've got any on there, make sure you've got updates. If you've got new prayer requests you just want prayed for for a week, put them in that top section. If you want them to show up on the list for next week, put them in that bottom section, and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks for coming, guys.